Good evening, my brothers and sisters and friends. I am doing pretty well, and I really hope you are too. Let's talk this evening about something that's very important, especially for the, for the believer. Let's call it um, Jesus' love for us and the love that we should share because he lives in us removes obstacles. Okay, the love that Jesus has doesn't put obstacles in people's way, it removes obstacles. Let me explain this. Let me give you an example. Okay, when I, when I occasionally post things on Facebook, or when someone posts something that notifies me to read it, especially lately, I've seen a, re a repeating ad for a Christian t-shirt company. I have no problem with it, and I even thought about starting my own Christian t-shirt company once or twice as a way to both evangelize and to encourage my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Every time I see these ads, though, there's a male model with bulging muscles, torn pants for style, and tattoos, or what they would call body art, all over his arms. So, yesterday, I felt calmly and kindly led to post a note to those who run the company about it. It was short, it was polite, it was respectful, and it was true. I know that the Lord looks at the heart, and I know that man looks at the outward appearance. And I know that people that have gotten irremovable tattoos can and should be saved. It's not about that so much, just as I need the saving. The point I was trying to convey was that out of all the possible models they could have chosen to represent a believer, okay, one who is ambassador for Christ and who bears his name, as well as for the sake of other believers, uh, a non-tattooed person, someone a little more run-of-the-mill body-wise, so as not to unnecessarily tempt some of our sisters in the Lord who would find that a problem with their lust issues that they may be struggling with, as I know men do too. And perhaps maybe wear some normal, regular jeans rather than being a little overly fashion-consumed, okay? After all, clothes are really not meant for anything else but to cover our nakedness, right? Now, before anyone who's listening gets offended or defensive or riled up, see where I and the Lord are going with this, okay? That's just an example. Needless to say, I got one or two responses that weren't really warranted, but I put it out there, and then they, they weren't bad, but they really missed the point. And that's why I decided to write this, okay? Before taking a look at what the word of the Lord is saying about all of this, peripherally, through the Apostle Paul, let me share with you a perfect example from a pastor I once heard that did the right thing for the right reason. Now, 
After having gone to the church for a short time, I found out some things about it that really weren't cool, and the pastor wasn't really a good guy, and this, that, and the other. But in this particular case, I remember being there one Sunday when he shared this at the beginning of his message. He didn't go into a lot of detail about it, and it wasn't necessary because the message wasn't about that necessarily. He just made a comment, maybe because some people saw him that morning and said something to him. So I guess he thought he would address it. I don't know. But it's a perfect example of what we're talking about, how Jesus' love removes obstacles rather than put obstacles in people's way. Okay, The pastor I'm referring to, he had a full-grown, really long, full, like I said, beard, Okay, uh, to the point that it might have caused unnecessary attraction to himself Okay, or attention to himself. It, didn't bother me, okay, but he was relaying the situation, and it must have at least turned somebody off, okay? So he told us he shaved off or cut off his beard to a significant degree, okay? Did he have to? No. Would you have done that? I don't know. But his reason, his reason was loving, and it was right and it was biblical. Okay, he told us that if for whatever reason, his beard that he had a right to grow had caused his appearance to put an obstacle in the way of another person that would have normally heard and listened and received and heeded the gospel, he would gladly give up that right. And that's a good word to buzz in on, okay? the right, okay? It simply wasn't worth it, he said, and I agree totally, okay? And the, the possibility, okay, the possibility of gaining by cutting off his beard in this instance, so he wouldn't turn somebody off to the gospel, was, was, a, was a much better than the loss of freedom that he had, okay? And that's the point with him and his story, and it's the point in what we're going to talk about in the Bible. Okay, so it's a perfect example, as I said, of what Paul did and what Paul shares. And the point I was trying to convey on Facebook, albeit in a very few words, okay, and it's the same heart attitude of love that I'm talking about that we should embrace. We should live it out and walk it out in our Christian lives. Okay, we should never put our freedoms first or in the way or our rights in the way or puts an obstacle in another's way of hearing and receiving the gospel of Christ. Okay, now to understand this fully and rightly, I understand how Paul even came to bring it up in the first place of people in Corinth to put it in context, of course, and to, to lay hold of it. Okay, we need to look at two chapters in their entirety, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So listen closely, and I'll attempt to read it in a pace that doesn't race over anything. Okay, so let me put my notes aside for a second, and let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The first one 
starts to kind of lay the groundwork a little bit, even though it was in a different context, perhaps, and it was a different subject matter a little bit uh, as far as the what was pertinent about it. But you'll understand as you hear it, okay? And then the, and then the, the second part, the second chapter really goes into the, the meat of it. Okay, there was a problem in Corinth with new believers that had been pagan before and had worshipped idols and and were eating food that was offered to idols and God told them in the Old Testament but especially in the New Testament not to do that okay not so much because the food was bad but because it was offered to idols okay God doesn't want our second best God wants our first best and he certainly deserves it and God doesn't believe in idols because God said believe in me I'm the only God the only true God you worship me on me alone and he's worthy of it. He says, love me, love your fellow man, but don't go after idols. They're false, and they lead you, they lead you astray, and they'll lead you astray from me, which is, means I can't give you my best in life, because if you're following after something that's not true, and you're not following after me, okay, but that's my own groundwork. Now listen to this. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us Christians possess knowledge. And this knowledge, he said, puffs up. That means it kind of makes you conceited. Okay, he says, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know knowledge, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may, there may be many so-called gods, okay, as indeed there are many little gods and many little lords, some people speak of wrongly, yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom all things and uh, exist. No, excuse me, excuse me from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one lord jesus christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist however not everybody possesses this knowledge he says but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience because they're weak, meaning they're immature in their faith, they're new believers, is defiled unnecessarily. That food will not commend us to God. So we're no worse off if we don't eat it, and we're no better off if we do. So he's saying it doesn't really matter. Okay, but this is the key. Underline this if you want to. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Let me repeat this again. In other words, he's saying not all of us are strong enough in the Lord or mature enough in the Lord, so we don't, so they don't all know that they have the right to do these things because there's no real idol, they don't really exist, and there's only one God. So for those of us that know this, we have no problem with our conscience if we happen to eat that meat. So that was the issue at hand that was really relevant, but he takes it one step further. So he says, some of these people don't yet know this. So if they've left their old belief system and they found out what they were doing was wrong, they become believers, 
even though you have the right to eat that meat with a free conscience because you know you have the knowledge now because you've been walking with the Lord a while and you know that there's no problem with that because there's only one God and there's no such thing as idols. But younger believers don't always know some of these things. So he said, we're not going to eat meat for their sake, even though we have the right to. So he says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through their former association with idols eat food as if it's really offered to an idol. And their conscience, therefore, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no better off if we don't eat it, and we're no better off if we, we're no worse off if we do eat it. Excuse me, it says we are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to start eating food offered to idols also? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. In other words, you know, because you've been walking with the Lord a while, and you know his word. You don't believe in idols, okay? You're not a new believer, so you know you have this right, and it's not a problem with your conscience, okay? So you can go eat this. But if he sees you doing it because he's new and he was told not to do it, rightly so, then he might see you doing it and he's either going to be confused or his faith isn't going to be strong or he's going to be tempted to do what you're doing. And because he's a new believer and he just came out of that old mindset, that old belief, that he might be doing it and that's going to mess him up. So Paul says, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for somebody else. So he says, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brothers stumble for whatever reason, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And verse chapter 9 says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you were the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In other words, you're the fruit, the fact, you're proof that I'm an apostle. But he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right, there's that word again, to eat and drink anything? Do we not have the right to take along with us as we travel and spread the gospel, a believing wife. Now that could either mean getting married if she's a true believer, or it could mean take the wife you currently have as a believer and bring her along with you. He says, as the others do, as the other apostles do and brothers of the Lord, and even Peter. Is there, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Okay, who serves a soldier who serves as a soldier, excuse me, at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting any of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does the law not say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. In other words, 
Don't put a muzzle over his mouth where he's doing the work in the field to muzzle out the grain. Let him eat it. Okay. And then he says, is it for oxen that God is concerned when he says that? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, don't we even more so? Again, here's a big phrase. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Again, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That's why pastors get paid. Now he starts off the next paragraph saying this, but I have made no use of any of these rights. There's a phrase again. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no, no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me, and woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For I do this of my own will. I have a reward. But even if it's not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship of spreading it. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right, there's that word again, in the gospel. Then he says, for though I am free from all these things, I have made my, myself a servant to all. Even though I'm free from all these things and all these people, I have made myself on purpose a servant. I haven't made any use of my rights, that I might win more of them to the Lord. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself really being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I had become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And he finishes by saying, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run so that you can obtain it. He says, Every athlete exercises self-control, in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it to receive an imperishable one. And I don't run aimlessly, and I don't box as punching the air, 
but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So remember these. Verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And chapter 9, verse 12b, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Okay. Now, did, did you notice that the word right, R-I-G-H-T, came up several times? I counted at least seven times. This is kind of reminiscent of a life lesson the Lord gave me a few years ago. He said to me, just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should do something. Isn't that very practical for what we're talking about right now? And Paul says, just because I have the right to do it doesn't mean I should necessarily exercise my freedom to have the right to do that thing. Isn't it better to put it aside for the sake of the gospel, okay? At the time when God told me this, okay, it was totally unrelated to these chapters. But now, it was really a precursor concept, if you want to call it that, leading up to now. And now he says, a little more specifically, okay, what chapters eight, uh, what chapter 8 verse 9 says, okay? Remember, but take care that this right, this freedom of yours, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And by weak, we understand that to mean less knowledgeable of the word, okay, or a less mature Christian in their growing walk with the Lord. Okay, understand that. Notice again, in chapter 9, verse 12, Paul says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right or this freedom, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because we want them to be saved, just like we were saved. We want them to go to heaven, not to hell. Okay? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. Are we not to do the same thing? Okay, again, like I said in chapter 15, but I have no, I've made no use of any of these rights or any of these freedoms. And he touches on it again. In verse 19, for though I am free from all, as I said before, I have made myself a servant to all. So like the Lord first spoke to me, a little more simply and generally a few years ago, it still holds true. Just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should do something. The lesson, <clears throat> plain and simple, is give up your rights or your freedoms for the holy benefit of others. And so love like Christ loved and loves. As always, the Lord Jesus is our model, not of clothes, hair, shoes, or jewelry, but in love, perfect love. Okay? He counted the salvation of our eternal souls as more profitable 
in a far greater value than his right to live on this earth. He laid it down. Okay? He said there was no greater love for a man than to lay down one's life for his friends. He said no one took this life from him, but he willingly laid it down of his own accord. It was his choice. It's been said that love isn't a feeling so much as it is a choice, and that's certainly true. And our Lord and Savior and Master proved it. Amen? Praise his holy name. The word says, we love because he first loved us. This is certainly true too. Amen? Okay. As God, as the Messiah, as the one who has been given all power and authority in heaven and on earth, he has the right to judge based solely on the evidence of guilt in our births by nature and our lives by diseased fruit that come from diseased trees, as the Bible talks about. Okay, But he laid down that supreme and sovereign right to offer his sacrifice of love so that we could be rescued from darkness and bring us into his kingdom of marvelous light. And we, in the return of love, both of him and of ourselves, surrender and lay down our lives and rights and freedoms in order to gain so much more. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you. Okay, this is not what what is meant by God is good all the time and all the time God is good. It's not what he does so much as who he is. We are sinful by nature. He is perfect by nature. We are evil by nature. He is good by nature. That's what we're talking about. If he would have retained the most basic right of his life to keep his life, we would have been confined to being dead in our sins forever. Think about that. But like Paul said, this right of his did not become a stumbling block for us. In fact, he kicked that boulder right out of the way and he was resurrected. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. So I want you to understand, brothers, the moral of this story, okay, is in love of Christ, who lives in us as believers and as people in general, but especially believers, you want to imitate your Savior. You want to be more Christ-like. That's what God's trying to fulfill in you. Okay, Paul says, take any rights or freedoms that you have, and if necessary, put them aside. Give up those rights. Don't insist on them. Don't keep them. Don't stand firm at them, but be willing to lay them down and give them up. Why? So we don't, don't put an obstacle or a stumbling block in the path of another believer or another unbeliever, especially if they're on their way to becoming a believer. No right of ours, no freedom of ours, even if it's given by God and been, been and, 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 and it's appreciated. We're not ungrateful. We just don't want any of these rights he's given us to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in the way of someone else hearing and receiving the gospel, their sins forgiven, and knowing, having no fear of death, where they're going to go when they leave this earth. They're going to go into the loving presence of the Savior forevermore. And that's the gospel. If we want to love like Christ, lay down our rights so they don't become a stumbling block. I hope the Holy Spirit in these coming days and weeks really pounds this into your soul. And me too. 
No matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, trust me, we can grow in this area. God bless you all. Bye.